celebrating something like Palm Sunday every Sunday, same with Easter, um, but we're going a slightly different direction. You won't hear me talk about Jesus entering into Jerusalem this morning. We're going to stick with the same sermon series that we've had, but thinking about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the people there, they, they were cheering, they were waving palm branches, they were putting him on a, a, on a pedestal, right? They were elevating him, and, and rightfully so. We have a way as humans of idolizing people, placing them on a pedestal of really, really looking up to them. So here's a question I want you to think about and actually answer out loud in just a moment. Who do you look up to? Who do you, who do you idolize? If you're watching online, go ahead and put it in the comment section. Uh, for example, famous people, rich people, influential people, sports stars, March Madness people. I won't say anything else about basketball this morning. Religious leaders. We tend to elevate people, don't we? Place them on a pedestal. I want you to tell me one person that in your life you have placed on a pedestal. Go ahead, just shout it out. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, always the correct answer. We're going to come back to that one. Thank you. Your mother, okay? Me? Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> We're going to go with just people of religious authority, but thank you. Uh, somebody else? Did I, I heard a little fella say, me. Anybody, anybody else? I'm sorry, who said that? Steve Eiserman. Hockey player? Okay. A spouse. Okay, good. Anybody else? Beth Moore. Beth Moore. So we, we, tend to, we tend to elevate people, don't we? See, the, the problem comes when these people fall, when these people fail, when, when they let us down. You know, when they struggle in ways that we feel they shouldn't struggle because we have elevated them, right? Whether it's affairs, financial misdealings, um, outbursts of anger, wrong words said at the wrong time, when they run out of steam and we feel like they should be going strong. How many of the people of that you just shared with me struggled at some point, fell at some point? You don't have to answer. I mean, I see some people nodding. I think most people would, would nod. For me, the person that I uh, elevated for a long time was Lance Armstrong. I loved that guy. Seven back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back Tour de France winners. And boy, did I believe him when he said he never cheated. I wore the Livestrong bracelet. I wore a Livestrong jacket yesterday, right? And I was crushed when it came to light what he did and how he treated people. We have a way of idolizing people, putting them on a pedestal, but then when they fall, when they show their humanity, it's almost like we're disappointed. Almost like we're, we're let down. Now, if we're going to idolize anybody, it should be who Tim shouted out. <laughs> Got you right when you were drinking there. <laughs> He says, Jesus, yeah, we should idolize Jesus. We should elevate him. We should, we should put him on a pedestal. He's the one who, of all people who've ever lived, we should do that with. But here's the ironic thing. When we see glimpses of his humanity, we get disappointed. We get let down a little bit. We're like, wait, no, 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 no. You, you can't feel that, say that, think that, express that that way. In fact, it's kind of ironic because when he does things that are human, we don't just accept the humanity, we tend to spiritualize it. We tend to over-spiritualize it. Oh, Jesus got mad. There's probably some sort of deep lesson that we should learn about how to grow closer to God. 
He, he got tired. Oh, that's, that's probably, it shows us that when we're doing this, this, and this, then our spiritual life is suffering. Why can't we just be okay accepting Jesus' humanity? We're in a short sermon series leading up to Easter where we're looking at the last words of Jesus on the cross. We're looking at the seven things he, that he said that we have recorded while he was hanging there. Last week, we looked at words of relationship. We saw what he said to his mom and how he cared for her. And we, we saw how he forgave the people who were hanging him on the cross and how that forgiveness may have opened the doors for future relationship. Today, we look at two other statements of Jesus, and we get to see in these statements his humanity. We're going to look at his humanity this morning. Now, before we do that, let me pray. Lord God, I'm grateful this morning that we get to be together. I'm grateful that we have the freedom to gather under the same roof. Um, I'm grateful that we get to worship. I'm grateful that we get to start Holy Week together, where, yes, we celebrate and we remember how you came into Jerusalem, hailed as the coming king, and you are still our king. You have come and you will come again. Lord, we do elevate you. We do lift you up because that is a place where you belong. As we look at some phrases today that remind us of your humanity, would you connect with us, maybe on a new and different way? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I mentioned last week we looked at Jesus' words of relationship, and the first thing we looked at last week was his words to his mom. If you remember, it's in John chapter 19, uh, verse 25, 27. It says, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. All right, so that's where we left off, or that's one of the passages we looked at last week. Now, John, the storyteller, continues with the very next verse in verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so he soaked up, they soaked up a sponge on it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. To fulfill scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. I am thirsty. To fulfill scripture, how did the author John know that when Jesus said that, that's what he was doing? Now, this is kind of a, a rabbit trail for a second, but I sat there this past week thinking that. How did he know that that's what Jesus was thinking of? I mean, did Jesus, like, you know, did he, did he wink at somebody as he's there, like, hey, psst, you know what? I've been searching all the Old Testament scriptures, you know, our scriptures, and I've been going through the list of the ones that I'm supposed to fulfill before it's over. I've got one more. Watch this. <clears throat> I thirst. Is that what happened? Oh, no. Forgive me if I'm being a little bit sacrilegious. I don't think it happened like that. You know, I sat in my office this past week, and I was wrestling with that. You know, probably John came back later and realized, oh, well, it, it, it could have fulfilled Scripture when Jesus said that. And I wonder, was that John's way of over-spiritualizing something that was going on? I'm just, I'm wondering out loud, because theologians, pastors, preachers, we have a way of doing that, of taking something that's said and turning it into something deeply, deeply spiritual. I mean, the, the text does say that, uh, to fulfill scripture, so we can say that was true, okay? 
several passages that scholars point back to that, that's, that, that they say uh, Jesus was fulfilling Scripture in. Psalm 69, verse 21. But instead, they gave me poison for food. They offered me sour wine for my thirst. Okay, that was in uh, years and years and years and years before Jesus was hanging on the cross. So this could have fulfilled this part in the story in John, right? Another one uh, scholars point back to is Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Also a good verse to fit with this story. It would, it would help us know that, okay, Jesus was fulfilling scripture when he said, I thirst. Now other pastors and theologians, they, they take it a different way, yet still spiritualizing it. They remind us of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Early on, Jesus says, God blesses those who hunger and, say it with me, thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. So maybe Jesus' actions on the cross, his impending death on the cross, they were a demonstration of him thirsting for justice and righteousness. That could fit well with the overall story. Now, other, other pastors and scholars, they point to a couple other psalms. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? It's a great, great psalm. Another one, Psalm 63, verse 1, says this. O God, you are my God, and I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Scholars and theologians will say Jesus' statement, I thirst, while hanging on the cross, was him demonstrating the fact that, you know, he was thirsting for God. He wanted to be in God's presence. That would make a good sermon, wouldn't it? Someone could say amen. Amen. That would make, I'm not going to preach that one today. I want to go on a rabbit trail for just a second. For some dumb reason, Ash Wednesday, I decided to give up every liquid except water for Lent. Yeah, y'all go ahead and laugh at me. I deserve it. Okay, we're talking no coffee, no tea, no juice, no milk, no ciders, no anything like that. But I said to myself, self, anytime you get thirsty for something beside water, you recite Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. I was convinced that over the 40 days, 46 days, counting Sundays, between Ash Wednesday and Easter, if I only drank water and if I recited that after every time I thirsted for something else, I would, my spiritual life would grow. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> every time I looked at my coffee pot, every time I looked at my tea kettle, I just got mad. There was nothing holy at all about it. Oh. Let's go back to our text. <laughs> Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture he said I am thirsty and scholars will say he was demonstrating his longing for God his heartfelt desire to be in God's presence I, I use a, an academic commentary one that has really really smart people that write books and things and, and one of the authors in that commentary said the suffering psalmist Speaking of Psalm 63, verse 1, is thirsty for God, as one thirsts for water in an arid desert. 
Jesus, he writes, was really thirsty for God. The pronouncement is addressed, therefore, not to the Roman soldiers, but to God, signaling his intense longing to rejoin the Father by drinking the cup the Father had given him. It's John 18, verse 11. That's good. That would preach too. Right, Pastor Michael? Man, that would preach. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Now, one other way that people will spiritualize this is, is they will say that John put that in there to combat Gnosticism. Okay, the Gnostics back then in the early church, they believed that Jesus was not fully human. They believed that matter was evil and therefore God could not connect himself with matter because then God would be connected with evil. Therefore, Jesus couldn't be fully human. Did you catch all that? I said that really, really quick. They even believed he didn't leave footprints when he walked. Jesus was only a phantom in human form, they claimed, which the Spirit of God took shape. Gnostics said God could not suffer, therefore Jesus could not experience thirst because he would be suffering. Therefore, according to the Gnostics, Jesus' cry for thirst was spiritual. All these examples are great, and they may all have truth in them, but I've got to wonder if Jesus was just plain thirsty. Right? I mean, was, was he just plain thirsty? What if his mouth was dry and his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth? Think about it. Think about the last 36 hours for him. Okay? He had been physically beaten. He had carried a cross, marched it, hauled it up a, up a long hill, up a road. There was no aid stations on that Via Della Rosa. For anybody who's done recent races, like a St. Paddy's Day trot, there was no aid station where they're offering gels or pretzels or bananas for cramping. Nobody gave Jesus Gatorade. In fact, not once, I looked, not once, like it happens at all the races, did somebody reach out a Dixie cup full of water and say, good job, you're almost there, keep going. No wonder he was thirsty. Like physically thirsty. Why can't we just accept that? Why do we have to try and over-spiritualize this? I mean, let's go biological. Elena, you've probably seen this. Ruth, you probably have too. Did you know that thirst is a very common physical response when you're about to die? You've seen this? For those watching online, Elena is in hospice care. Not like she's not in hospice. She, she's a chaplain. Just... <laughs> I don't need to get any emails this week. <laughs> According to the Journal of Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin, as death approaches, thirst is normal. And I quote, seriously ill and dying patients encountered by hospice and palliative care clinicians are at risk for thirst due to dehydration, electrolyte disturbances, hypotension, immobility, which can impede access to water. Studies show that 80 to 90% of people who are dying experience significant thirst before they die. Eight out of nine, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people face thirst. Jesus was thirsty. And I don't know if we have to over-spiritualize that. I think that we can place him on a pedestal. We can elevate him, but we also can't forget that he was one of us, that he experienced some of the same things we do. And honestly, I think that that can make us connect to him a little bit better. Tim, I'll have you come on up here. Tim's going to quietly start playing, and I want us to wrestle through just a couple of things as we kind of wrap up this first mini message.
as we're reminded today of Jesus's humanity, as we think through this, this, this way that he thirsted physically, does it change the way we view him? Does it change the way we feel about him? As you think back to other stories in the gospel where you're reminded of his humanity, can you listen to those? Can you hear those? Can you feel those slightly differently? Do you relate to Jesus a little bit more being reminded of his humanity? And perhaps some of the things he said and do and did, you're no longer like, well, of course he said and did that because he was God. But maybe he said and did that because he was human. I want to spend just a moment or two letting, letting Jesus' humanity sink in and, and maybe even experiencing a little bit of the thirst that he felt on the cross. Thank him for the fact that he was fully human. Jesus, I'll confess that it is easier to think of you as God, to think of you as fully divine. It makes more sense to me than how you could do the miracles, how you could interact with people the way you did. Because you, you knew everything. You knew how things were going to turn out. And yet today, as we are thinking through your full humanity, I'm realizing that there is a part of that that I can deeply connect with as well. And I ask, Lord, as we kind of let this sink in this morning, that it would sink deeper than it has before. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. His passion, his mission, his, his heartbeat. We're wondering how his words can relate to us. Today we're looking at words of humanity. And we've just seen how Jesus is called to thirst. Or his, his saying that I thirst was probably realistic, that he was physically thirsty. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't fulfilling scripture, and I'm not saying that he didn't know that his end was near, but I think we overlook the fact. We rush past the fact that Jesus had human emotions and feelings as well. We get to see another uh, human emotion in Mark chapter 15. Go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them. In the Gospel of Mark, he only records one thing that Jesus says on the cross. Just, just one. In fact, it's probably too... Uh, light to say he said this on the cross. And in this situation, he, he, it really comes out more of a guttural cry. And in Mark's gospel, all the regular things happen that lead up to Jesus hanging there on the cross. Right? He's arrested, he's, he's betrayed, arrested, he's denied by Peter. There's a trial, there's, there's beatings, there's mockings by the soldiers, by the crowds, by the religious people. And, and all that happens leading up to this. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 and 34 says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
of all the sayings of Jesus on the cross, this is probably the most challenging to understand. It's, it's probably the one that uh, has confused people the most. I mean, for centuries, people have tried to make sense out of it, and their feeble attempts have come up short. And today, my feeble attempt will also come up short. Just letting you know that right off the bat. Where I land on this today, I'll play my cards right off the, right off the bat. I think this is another example of Jesus' full humanity. Now, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of pastors and, and preachers will tie back the events that take place on the cross to some of the Psalms. One of them in particular, Psalm 22, verse 1 and 2. And I've done this. Uh, in fact, last year, I think I focused on Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins like this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Sound familiar? Why am I so far away? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Verse 2, every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. King David wrote years and years before, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, I don't doubt that at some point during this, uh, this whole ordeal, I don't doubt that Jesus recalled this passage. In fact, I'm not even really questioning that when he said this, this was what he was thinking of. What we do, unfortunately, today, pastors and preachers are guilty of it. Pastor Ron, maybe you've done it. Pastor Michael, maybe you've done it. Is we try and soften this statement. We try and uh, dull the, the sharp edges of it. Because we don't like thinking that Jesus may be feeling abandoned by his father. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll say something like, well, in Jewish culture and custom, when somebody quotes the first verse of a, of a psalm, it's understood that the rest of the psalm is also to be understood. It's also to be remembered. Therefore, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? He is expecting everybody else around him to continue in their mind reciting the rest of that psalm. And though the psalm starts in this cry of abandonment, it ends with notes of triumph. In fact, verse uh, 27 of this psalm ends with the whole earth acknowledging God and returning to him. Verse 30 of the psalm talks about the story of God being told to future generations. And verse 31 says it's going to be told to even those not yet born. Everything God has done. That's the end of the psalm. So for many pastors and preachers, we, we say, okay, Jesus started with, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? But realistically, he was pointing people towards that other time. We do that because... We don't like thinking through the fact that Jesus might have felt abandoned. He might have felt turned away from. He might have felt neglected. And yet that's what he cried out. That's the one thing Mark recorded him crying out. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now I want you to note that he's not walking away from his faith. He says, my God. My God. So he's not losing his free Methodist church membership role. And just in case you're wondering, Jesus was not a free Methodist. Okay? He was feeling something, experiencing something for the very first time that he had never experienced before. He was feeling abandoned. By the one person who he had never felt that from before. The story of Jesus, the Son, and God the Father is one of unity, is one of, of oneness. I mean, the, the Father, from the very beginning, everything Jesus said and did was done in some sort of communion with the Father. Some sort of relationship with the Father. Listen to how Jesus describes their relationship in John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. 
Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing, and whatever the father does, the son also does. See, there's a oneness there. And then listen to what he says in John, oh, he says, for the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, the father and I are one. There's this perfect unity that Jesus has lived 33 plus years in the middle of. And yet in that moment on the cross, the gospel writer Mark says Jesus feels something he's never felt before. He feels abandoned, real, true, deep abandonment. And again, we may try and soften that and say, well, ultimately Jesus knows he's going to raise. He knows he's going to win. He knows the story isn't over yet. We say that on this side of the story, but if you, if you put yourself on Jesus' side, he had emptied himself of all divine privileges and knowledge. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says that. So in that moment, all that Jesus knew was that he didn't feel the Father there. Was that the Father had turned away from him. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was experiencing something that all humanity goes through. It's just he hadn't gone through it yet. As one author says it better than I can. He says, maybe it was like this. Jesus had taken his life, the, the, this life of ours, upon himself. He had done our work and faced our temptations and borne our trials. He had suffered all that life could bring to him. He had known the failure of friends, the hatred of foes, the, ma the malice of enemies. He had known the most searing pain that life can offer. Up to this moment, Jesus had gone through every experience of human life except one. He had not known the consequence of sin. He had not known the consequence of sin. Until that moment. If there's one thing that sin does, it creates a barrier between us and God. It creates this unscalable wall that you just can't breach. Jesus' human experience crying out, why have you forsaken me? Is because he had never experienced this separation from God due to sin. And yet there he is, having not sinned himself, carrying our sin. And feeling the weight of that. He was feeling what the prophet Isaiah spoke of in the 59th chapter, verse 1 and 2. Listen, Isaiah says, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. Verse 2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Jesus may not have sinned, but he was experiencing our sins. And because of that, the father had turned away. He had left and Jesus felt it. Now, every ounce of me wants to think that the father leaned down and said, it's okay, son, it's going to be fine. Trust me on this one. But we have no written account that God said that, that the father said that. No written account that he gave some sort of encouragement. The story we see is that Jesus felt abandoned. He felt turned away from. He felt all alone. To me, that is a, a deep and honest cry of humanity. Because I think at some point, each of us will feel similar things to that. 
I'm not going to put myself in the categories that I don't belong in, but I've, you know, I've had a friend turn away. I've had co-workers betray me. I've, I've had moments where I felt alone. Some of you guys have felt this aloneness to much greater depth. I mean, you felt some of the abandonment that Jesus is feeling. You've had a, a spouse leave or a parent leave. You found a note on the table saying, I'm going to get groceries, and then mom never came back. So you guys have felt some of that depth that Jesus felt, that pain of abandonment. And for some of you, this is translated into your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he intervene? You know his arm was not too weak, nor his ear too deaf to hear you call. But from your vantage point, he did to you what he did to the Son on the cross and turned away. Listen, I've wrestled with how to finish this morning's message. These little mini messages on Jesus' humanity. I'll invite Tim to come back up again. You know, there's, there's the parts of me that, uh, I think there's the parts of my humanity that wants to point towards next week, right? Towards, towards the joy of next week. Towards the excitement. Towards the, the flowers and the pastel colors of next week. You know, I, I want to I rush past this. But I don't think I will today. Because I want us to sit in this unrest. I want us to feel this humanity that Jesus felt, this cry of abandonment that he felt, and that maybe even thinking about that for him has brought some of those same feelings back to some of us. So I want us to finish today kind of sitting in that unrest, feeling that dis-ease and that disease being sin that separated Christ from the Father and us from the Father. I want to leave us feeling some of the last words of Jesus' humanity as he cried out from the cross. But before we sing our final song, I want us to think back to some times where maybe we have felt abandoned, forgotten, neglected. What did that feel like? Have there been times when you have felt like God has turned his face from you? Did it shake your faith? Were you still able to cry out, my God, my God? Can you relate to Jesus any more, any differently today, having heard his words of humanity? In Christian tradition, this is a fantastic week. Holy Week. Starts with Jesus entering into Jerusalem, being lifted up, being idolized, placed on a pedestal. We move through the week and we get to Friday and we're, we've been looking at uh, the last two Sundays and then coming into Good Friday and next week we've been looking at what Jesus said on the cross. We look forward to family gatherings, to meals, to uh, other traditions. Easter egg hunts, whether virtual, we look forward to trunk hunts. And I think too often we don't take the time to sit and reflect on what Jesus went through as a full human being. And my prayer this week is that we would do that. We can continue to elevate Jesus. We can idolize him. We can place him on a pedestal. But we need to be reminded that he was human just like us. And because of that, perhaps we can connect to him in a new and different way. Lord God, this week, 
as we celebrate Holy Week with whatever events that we've got, whatever gatherings we have, whatever plans we have. As we do that, would you remind us of your full humanity? Would you help us understand you, your son, a bit more this week? We look forward to how you're going to, how we're going to experience you in a different way. And we give you this week. We give it to you in Jesus' name.